following audio is from Deering Christian Church. Join us Sunday mornings at either 9 or 10.30 a.m. Yo, empty is rarely a good thing. Empty. Um, empty, empty tank. Empty tank. Now, now I, I can say this saying not us, I can say you, because I have never, I might be careful with this, but never found myself on the side of the road now, I've been on the side of the road broken down in a vehicle. That happens to me quite often. But I've never been on the side of the road with an empty gas tank. Has not happened to yet in this point in time. Um, another thing about, about empty tanks this time of year, I mean, how, how much fun was that filling those propane tanks this year? I know there's a few of you who have those, and if you run those suckers out, then they got to come in your house and light all those pilots. Like, we don't know how to light pilots. I mean, seriously, come on, people. But it can be a little frustrating. How about an empty pool? Have you ever pulled up? Pulled up to um, maybe a hotel after a long day of driving, and you've got the kids with you? Okay, and it's 104 degrees in, in Mesa, Arizona, and the pool is empty? They did not tell you that before you paid for your room. Man, they left that out, all right? Um, how about this one? How, oh, man, maybe this is, it's a little too close to home. An emptying water supply? Um, is that something we've been, we've been hearing a little bit about more recently? On that note, how about this one? Empty clouds? Found yourself looking at the sky a few times in the last few months of like, okay, I know you're up there, Rain. Okay, it, it's time. It's time to fall out of those clouds. It's interesting. That's gone on for quite some time. And I'm not talking about the drought. I'm talking about empty clouds. Solomon talked about empty clouds. Solomon of, of Old Testament fame, the son of David, and he, he, compared, he compared big talkers who don't have anything to back up their big talk to empty clouds. All right? And then Jesus, his half-brother Jude, that would actually be one of the last books in your New Testament, second to the last, right before Revelation, the Revelation of John. And what you will find there is he's talking about the false teachers that he was battling with his letter that he wrote, how they were empty clouds. They, they were valueless. There was nothing within their teaching. How about empty bank accounts? Empty promises? I mean, we can think of a lot of empties that aren't good. There might be something good about empty, though. Maybe, just maybe, that there is an empty that has to do with knowledge that could be a good thing. And I'm not talking about empty knowledge. I'm talking about knowing the personal state of being empty. You understand what I'm getting at with that? Being aware of an emptiness within. That, that, can, be, that can be a pretty powerful thing. A little bit more on that later. As we jump right here into, into the middle of Acts, um, just for us to understand if you're with us here for the first time, you're kind of right in the middle of things. By this time, the church has been going for going on over two decades now. And we have two men by the name of Paul and Barnabas who are on one of several missionary journeys that Paul will take. This is the first one. And, okay, Tim, go ahead and throw that map up there just to give us an idea. This is the first missionary journey of Paul. It, it, it spanned over 1,200 miles, um, as well as the fact that it took, a, it took around a year and a half to complete. So they're over halfway through this missionary journey. So this, I mean, we've only been at this a few weeks, the missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas, but we've already covered a very significant period of time. 
As you can see up here, what, what JB talked about last week was Iconium, right up there in the middle, they're in the region of Galatia, they were basically kicked out of Iconium, okay? Now, Paul and Barnabas are not scared of persecution, okay, but they're not stupid either. And once the message had gotten out, they knew that, that the message was there and it was planted and it would continue to grow. Um, once they started getting, you know, violent, physically violent with them, they left and they went down to Lystra, which is south of there, 30 or 40 miles. That's where we are going to look at the event that takes place today. Okay, so what we have going on is what we will see in Acts today is one of two times. Now, there's a number of sermons written for us in Acts, and understand the sermons that we see written in Acts are most likely summaries, okay? But they get the high points of the sermon more than likely. Um, And we are going to find one of two sermons by the Apostle Paul that are addressed to an entirely pagan audience, and that's different. Because most of the sermons in Acts are preached by Paul. There's usually Jews out there in the presence. They know a little something about God. Okay? Yahweh, the creator of everything. And, and many times if there weren't Jews, there were at least some God-fearing Gentiles who also knew a little something about the creator God. Okay? So there's only two times. Once in Lystra that we'll look at today. And then a few chapters later, we'll see another time where Paul preached to a group in Athens, not Athens, Georgia, all right, Athens, Greece, and, and, and you get to see him in that time, and when he, when he preaches to these pagan audiences who are very foreign to the concept of a single one God and creator, his sermons look just a little bit different. Now, this sermon today will take a whole new place when it comes to urgency, as we will see for a very unusual reason. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you just a little bit of a heads up, all right? Um, yes, I get asked this all the time, sometimes facetiously, okay, and sometimes I think, but people who really want to know. Yes, ministers, preachers do work more than one day a week, and I'm not just talking about Wednesday, all right? They, they really do. They really do, okay? Um, but sometimes they have a little bit of freedom within that schedule. And I'm telling you, straight up, when it finally decides to rain, okay, if that's not a Sunday or a Wednesday, which are pretty crazy days for me, I'm not going to be here. I'm going to be somewhere. I don't know where. But somewhere I'm going to find a mud puddle and I'm going to do a, a mud angel. Okay, forget the snow angels. I'm doing, I mean, I'm going to soak it up. I am going to let, because you know you're going to be there. You're going to look to the sky and you're going to say, you know, this is familiar. There's something about this wet stuff coming down out of the sky. I've seen this before. It's happened before. I remember this. The deja vu is going to kick in, all right, which is a French term, by the way, deja vu. Okay, speaking of deja vu, why don't you look to verse 8 of Acts 14. Because you should, if you've, if you've read through Acts, you should be experiencing a little bit of deja vu when you read it. Verse 8, at Lystra a man was sitting who had no strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. If that sounds somewhat familiar, there's a good reason for it. In Acts chapter 3 we read these words, a man who had been lame from his mother's womb. 
That took place in Jerusalem. It's very, very early. We're talking, I mean, we're talking 20 years or so before this happens in Lystra. And there was a man who had been put near the entrance of the temple. And he was there for one reason. The only thing he could do, occupationally speaking, was beg from people who were coming to and from the temple. And there, by the way, the author, many of you know this, the author of Luke, the man that God chose to write this early history of the church, was a doctor. Okay, so he he makes it really clear in Acts chapter 3, and he makes it even more clear here in Acts 14 in Lystra, by repetition that this man's handicap was beyond an earthly cure. I mean, goodness, look at this. At Lystra, there was a man who was sitting, had no strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. So he makes it very, very clear that there was no cure for what this man was dealing with. So he is sitting there. He's not standing, obviously, and he's listening. Look at verse 9. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who when he had fixed his gaze on him and had seen that he had faith to be made well, a little deja vu once again. Because in Acts chapter 3, that's long before the apostle Paul. Okay? It wasn't Paul and Barnabas in Acts chapter 3. It was Peter and John. And they are coming into the temple. And Peter looks over and he fixes his gaze on this, this, this beggar outside the temple. And that started that whole progression of, of him that basically ended with with him being healed. Just like that, here Paul fixes his gaze on this man in Lystra. And there is something going on here that might be a little bit more than meets the eye. Because if you look to your scripture there in verse 9, now if you have a Bible that has footnotes or side notes or something like that, you might notice something by that in verse 9, made well. Because literally the Greek means this, He saw that he had the faith to be saved. There's probably something going on here a little more deep than just a physical healing. Paul, the Apostle Paul, by the power of the Holy Spirit, looks at this man, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, he has the ability to see great potential within this lame man. And guys, do not miss the progression when you do a comparison contrast between Acts 3 and Acts 14. In Acts 3, as I said, you got Peter and James, or Peter and John, and they're walking into the temple, and, and they see this beggar. This beggar had no, even no idea that they were even anywhere around. And it says when Peter calls out to him, the beggar looks at him and thinks, well, maybe they got some money for me, all right? But here in Lystra, we've got Paul and Barnabas there. What do you think they're doing in Lystra? What do they do in every single town that they come to? They preached the gospel. Jesus, who died, he was buried, he arose, and he appeared to others. That's the gospel. And the truth of that can change lives. So they're preaching the gospel, and he's listening. He's got his eyes on Paul. Paul puts his eyes on him. He sees him, and he's thinking to himself, this guy, this guy has some potential here. All right, this must be quite a fella here in Lystra. So let's continue on. 
Verse 10, this is Paul speaking. Paul said with a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he leaped up and began to walk. Just like we saw in Acts chapter 3. Let's think about this just for a moment, people. Okay? We've got a guy here. He's never taken a step in his life. His feet aren't only lame. His ankles and his knees. He has no muscle. There's atrophy going on here. This guy has never used his legs. Much like the guy in Acts He is told to stand up in Acts by Peter, in Acts Acts 3 by Peter, in Acts 14 by Paul, and immediately he leaped to his feet. So not only do you have the miracle of the healing, you have the miracle of this guy. I mean, think about it, moms and dads. Do you remember how long it took that kid to learn how to walk? I mean, they they did not come out of the delivery room and start walking around. That's not the way it worked. It took a long time. This man's never taken a step in his life. And he's up jumping around like like Michael Jordan, just like the guy in Acts 3. This is an incredible miracle here. And what happens next? Let's not lose sight of this man who had his life changed so miraculously. Okay? Because from this point on, we kind of leave this guy behind. I'd love to know the rest of his story. (laughs) I mean, I really really would. In Acts chapter 3, after the healing, the people were excited and they were amazed. And Peter goes on to preach a sermon to them. Okay? This is kind of where the similarities between Acts 14 and Acts 3 come to an abrupt end. Now, the end, the chapters end somewhat similarly, but what happens next? Completely, completely different. Completely different. Have you ever had, have you ever had a movie go rogue on you? Any of you? I can think of one time when a very good friend of mine told me about a movie that was so good. He's already laughing. He's here today. Told me about a movie. He said, that'd be a great movie for, for you to watch sometime. So I went and picked out, I went and got this movie while we were with the entire family extended down at Grandma and Paul's down in Yukon, Oklahoma. You remember that, Mike? That was very awkward, wasn't it? Yes, the movie went rogue, okay? And by the end of this movie, now, I got the movie. It's like, I've got to finish this. I mean, once you're there, you've got to finish it, okay? I think by the end, Mike and I were the only one in there. Grandma, Paul, cousins, aunts, uncles, they fled. Like, they're gone. The movie went rogue, all right? It's happened to my father-in-law a number of times as well. Um, this, is, this is back in ancient history, okay? Um, back when, oh boy, I better be careful. I hope Donna's not watching this right now. She always gets so frustrated with me because, because, because I'm getting older. And she says, don't talk about becoming old because then people think I'm old. It's like, don't worry about it. They know I robbed the cradle. It's all good, hon. You look great. You don't look old. So it wasn't ancient history. It was just a few years ago, okay? When Donna and Darby, the rest of the kiddos, were young, all right? And Dennis and Debbie were very faithful in going on date nights, which is important. And it was a very good thing that they did. They practiced. And, and occasionally, Dennis would show up with a, with a nice little movie for the kiddos to watch while they were gone. Candyman. It's like, oh, Candyman, that's got to be a good one. That's for the... 
It's not candy land, it's candy man. And there's a big difference. I don't even know if Dennis ever knew that movie went, movie went rogue on him because I think he did it more than one time. All right. It's like you get to a certain point and then all of a sudden, well, didn't, that was unexpected. <laughs> Wasn't ready for that to come about. Here in Lystra, everything is going according to the plan. Paul and Barnabas show up. They preach the gospel. Again, Jesus came, he died, he was buried, he arose, and he appeared to a whole bunch of people, and that can change your life, all right, because he died for you. That's the gospel. So they preach the gospel. That gospel gets backed up by a powerful work of God through the Holy Spirit. You got this man lame from birth. He's up jumping around like, like Michael Jordan, all right? You've got all this taking place. It's going good, all right? And then something happens that takes it off track in a hurry. Look at verses 11 and 12. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in the Lyconian, that's, that's important, language, the gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Okay, they're speaking in their native language. Now understand something about that day and time. Paul, especially in Barnabas II, were two very learned men. But you're dealing with an incredibly metropolitan type of, of civilization, empire, when you're talking Rome. Now they did have a basic language that everybody spoke. It'd either be Koine Greek or it'd be Aramaic. Okay, and quite a few knew Latin as well. But in these different regions, because the empire was so stinking big, you had people who spoke their own dialects and their own languages. And Paul and Barnabas did not know this Lyconian language. They didn't know it. So the people are all excited. All of this is going on. One thing to keep in mind, I did a little studying on this this week, and this is actually quite fascinating to me, and it plays a role in what took place that day. There was a first century Greco, Roman Greco poet, Ovid. Now, his Greek name was much bigger, but his Roman name, they just shortened it down to Ovid, all right? And as I said, he was a first century poet. And he wrote a story that had to do with an older, pious couple that lived in the region of Galatia and how they had been visited by Zeus, who Zeus was the chief Greek god, all right, and Hermes was Zeus, his son, and he was a herald, a speaker of the gods. And Zeus and Hermes, according to what Ovid wrote in his story here, they were kind of incognito, came into the region, and there was a couple who showed them great hospitality, and because of this, they were rewarded handsomely for what they had done. So this had been written about. This is people knew about this. Now it was a story, but it was, you got to remember, these are Greco-Roman people. They believed in Greek gods. So when they see this miracle take place, for which they have no earthly explanation, their mind immediately goes, well, Zeus and Hermes are back. They're back, and man, this is a big, big deal. And once again, Paul and Barnabas don't understand this language. They don't understand it. They see that the people are excited, that is normal, but they don't understand that what is taking place now is not normal. Look at verses 13 and 14. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. So <laughs> it's kind of funny. Paul and Barnabas are just kind of like, okay, they're excited, all right, okay, that's good, that's good, um, 
And then the oxen show up. And not just any oxen. Oxen and garlands, okay, for a lack of better terminology, all right, these are just like dressed up oxen, if you will. They've got like flowers draped over them, all these things, ready for sacrifice. So, so Paul and Barnabas see that and they're like, uh, okay, what are those for? And then they begin to catch on as to what's taking place here. Look at verse 14. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of this, they figured it out. They tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd. Now, this is a completely opposite scene of what we saw in Acts chapter 12 just a few weeks ago. In Acts 12, remember, there was, there was a... A, we were, he was actually more of a governor. They called him King Herod, but he wasn't the emperor who was in charge. But you had, you had Herod, Herod Agrippa is who it was specifically. And he was standing before a group of people. He came out early, early in the morning with his royal silver clothing on. The sun hit him. And the people that were out in front of him, now understand, the people, it was Herod who fed them. And he cut off their food because it was kind of bad between them. All right, kind of a soap opera thing going on here, okay? So um, they're kind of like kissing up, trying to get some food out of this guy, and they start saying, the voice of a God, not a man. And, and Herod Agrippa, who just prior to this had killed the very first apostle to lose his life for the name of Jesus Christ, James, okay? He doesn't give credit to who credit is due. And he accepted that glory. And he was dead less than a week later. Okay? Well, here in Acts 14, completely different situation. Paul and Barnabas figure out finally what these people are about to do. They rip their clothes. They're like, stop, stop, do not do this. Look at verse 15. They cried out saying, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men. And we preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. Got that? A living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And in generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So Paul goes on to preach a short sermon here. And this sermon looks a little different than the sermons he preached in the synagogues. Okay? These people don't know anything about the living God. They don't. So he's got to start with the basics here. Don't, for, don't forget, he's already preached the gospel to him, but now he's like, okay, okay, I'm going to have to back things up just a little bit here. And in this message, and understand, this is probably a condensed version of what he actually had to say. But the first thing he talks about is this. There is a real God. He is living, and we are made in his image, not vice versa. There's a big difference between God's made in the image of man and the God who made man in his image. Not only did he make us, Paul says, he made everything. 
So first of all, there is a real God and he is one. Second, God is patient. He is patient. He has allowed you to try it your own way and see that it doesn't work. And third, he's given you many, many good things. Jesus himself said, God brings rain to the righteous and the unrighteous. And that's the one that kind of jumps out to me. There's a, I mean, just seriously, what we're in the midst of right now, of all of these things that, that God does, these rains from heaven are the one that speaks to us right now, right? And I know that you might be saying, we've already covered it, but I want to emphasize it once again. You might say, well, we're, where's the gospel? He mentions gospel, but it looks like he's focusing more on creation than the gospel. Paul's already talked the gospel. I mean, look at verse 7, guys. This is where J.B. wrapped up last week. When they got to Lystra, verse 7, it says, and there they continued to preach the gospel. Paul and Barnabas never stop preaching the gospel. So, so Paul and Barnabas, they try to get things shut down, and they still have a hard time keeping this crowd from sacrificing to them. Look at verse 18. Even saying these things with difficulty, they restrain the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. You know, we look at this passage today and it seems a long ways away. Zeus, Hermes, I mean, are you kidding me? (laughs) Well, let me tell you something. This message still speaks today. Listen closely. God's patience and provision produces two types of pagans. You got that? God's patience, and I wasn't trying to use P words here. I didn't even realize it until I was reading this later. I was like, <laughs> man, I should, put all, I should put all the P words in there. I would have been, been pretty clever, you know? It just happened, all right? God's patience and provision produces two types of pagans. And understand something, brothers and sisters, there are still pagans today. You, you know that, right? A pagan is somebody who believes in, in false gods. And you might be like, well, no, they don't believe in gods today. Well, they might not say they do, but people of the world absolutely do. It's just the gods might have changed just a little. The gods usually take the form of, of government. Government will save me. Okay? They take, the gods take the form of creation, to, to worship creation rather than the creator. Paul talks about that in Romans still happens today. It's like where you elevate creation so high that it's more important than those whom creation was made for. Now, don't get me wrong. We've been commanded by God to be good stewards of what he has given to us. Don't misunderstand. But earth was made for people. People aren't here for the earth. Understand that? So there's, there's false worship of government. There's false worship, worship of, of creation. And probably the most damning one is the false worship of self. I'm the priority. My family is the priority. My people, my nation is the priority. 
Yeah, there are pagans today. Don't, don't, no, no, too long. I mean, they might not be following after Zeus or Apollo or, you know, or Ares. But there is still paganism and it is still rampant today. And God's patience and provision still produces two types of pagans. The first ones. Those who have not learned from years of following God's made in their own image. Those who haven't learned that it doesn't work. Let me tell you something, guys. It doesn't take much study of of ancient Greek mythology to see that the gods that the people messed up were royally screwed up, okay? I mean, you could take, you can take these, these gods, you know, and their escapades, and my goodness, you could take that and you make one heck of a daytime soap opera out of it. I'll tell you that right now, okay? What's the reason for that? Because they made gods in their own image, And there are those still in this world who have not learned from years of following gods made in their own image, have not learned that this doesn't work. There's no peace in this. But then there's the other type of pagan produced by the patience and provision of God. And it's those who had learned that their religion and philosophy only led to emptiness and regret. I'm sorry, guys, you cannot cannot look at a sermon preached to pagans in the Greco-Roman society and not understand and talk a little bit about philosophy, okay? And still to this day, one of the most quoted And the most revered philosophers lived about 400 years or so before Paul. Maybe you've heard about him. His name's Socrates. Socrates. So revered that that there is still a teaching, a teaching method that wears his name, the Socratic method. And guys, I know it's been a while since philosophy and since, since ancient philosophy, but maybe some of you have looked into this just a little bit. You know what Socrates was incredibly good at? He was good at coming up to somebody who thought they knew truth and by asking them questions, letting them self-discover that they know nothing. <laughs> it doesn't matter what, what you believed he would, he would attempt, and most of the time he was very successful at showing you what you thought you knew you don't really know. Now, here's the problem with Socrates. After he did this, he didn't have anything to give them. And he's, this is, he's the one through whom you hear this said, the unexamined life is not worth living. That's Socrates, Okay. But here's the problem. After they examined life and with his students, he's not like, well, I, okay, okay, if, if that's what I used to do doesn't work, what you got for me? I don't have anything for you. It's like, well, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. You should have given me the, is it the blue pill or the red pill? It's the red pill. Nobody remembers that movie. 
okay? I can't remember which pill it is. Let me believe what I believed, all right? Rather than ripping it all away and don't give me anything to replace it. That's, that was the Socratic method. Here's the thing. He was so good at helping people understand that they were empty. But he didn't have anything to give them to fill them back up. I just wonder what would have happened if Socrates had that conversation with Paul. You talk about a guy who could level with him intellectually speaking? Wow. And for Socrates finally to find someone who could back up what he believed. Imagine Socrates for a moment sitting down with Jesus. I have a feeling that it would have changed Socrates' life. So when you have God's patience and provision working on people who don't believe in him, you have some people who refuse to acknowledge it and they're going to continue to live the way that they're going to live. They do not care. They have not learned and not figured out that they are empty. And it is our prayer that they will figure it out. But on the other side of this, you got this second group that are primed for the gospel. Those who know and understand that what I've practiced in the past hasn't gotten me very far. And if I'm honest, I'm not in front of the starting line. I'm like behind the starting line right now. I'm not in front of the line of scrimmage. This is kind of KU yesterday. I'm behind the line of scrimmage, okay? I'm not getting anywhere. And those are the people, brothers and sisters. Those are the people who will listen to the message of Jesus Christ. I wonder about that healed man. I would love to know the rest of his story and maybe we'll get to one day. Let me tell you something about Lystra and about Derby and about some of these other places. We don't get a lot of details. In just a few verses, we're going to see Paul and Barnabas are headed this way. They get to a certain point. They do an about face. They turn around and start heading back the other direction. And they visit all the towns that they had come to on their way out. And they visit them all on their way back in. Guess one of the first ones they come to is Lystra. Yeah, there were people in Lystra who heard the message and who believed and had their lives, their eternities changed. 